Welcome to the Brass Spittoon, the podcast of the Front Porch Republic. We'll chew on issues timeless and timely with a focus on place, limits, and liberty. I'm your host, John Murdoch. Front Porch Republic Associate Editor and Brass Spittoon Revivalist Matthew Stewart takes on the role of guest today to talk about Wallace Stegner's quest for home. Stegner is the writer who famously gave us a geography of hope, but his own California dreams ended in disappointment, a journey that Matthew chronicles in his new book. This episode also introduces two first. It's our first solar-powered podcast, and the first time for me to be Zoom-free. Matt has pulled up a chair at my kitchen table. Pull up one of your own and listen in. My guest today is Matthew Stewart, author of The Most Beautiful Place on Earth, Wallace Stegner in California. Matt is no stranger to the Brass Platoon, having interviewed numerous people for the written version of the multi-pronged BS franchise. (laughs) But today, the tables are turned. Instead of asking questions for the typecast, Matt is a guest here on the podcast. So welcome, Matt. And let me begin with our standard opener, what does home mean to you? Well, John, since I'm uh, not a stranger to the podcast, I've been mulling over this question for a little bit here and, and uh, realizing that it was a little tougher for someone that is a front porcher to answer than, I, than I'd hoped. I think I'm going to have to admit that I don't quite have as much of a sense of place in the landscape sense as I might like to have. I grew up in Maryland born in California, but grew up in Maryland. I love the outdoors, but I, um, having studied someone like Wallace Stegner, who had a very strong sense of place, very strong memory of scents and scenes and atmospheres and in place. Um, I, I have to admit that I'm not, uh, someone that registers those things at the level that he did. So Maryland is, is the geographic home. And, uh, now like you live in uh, Idaho, so much different landscape. I, I think I'd say that one of the places that I felt most at home in my life was Geneva College and out just outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I think what really mattered to me about Geneva College was that it was a place where my grandfather and grandmother had been and had spent time. My grandfather was a student there, my grandmother wasn't. And then my both of my parents went to school there. And what really mattered to me about Geneva was that it was a place where people knew me beyond my immediate context. So there was, there was a generational feeling there. And it also helped that it was a college campus in a small Western Pennsylvania town that was walkable. So I went to school, went to church, all in the same location. It was a, it was a place that had a generational kind of aura to it that felt very different from where I'd grown up in Maryland, where where I went to school. And um, even though my mom had gone there to the same high school, I just, there was no one there that really had any kind of sense of who my family was. And, and it just mattered to me that I was with professors that had taught my parents, people that had worked with my grandparents. And that made me feel at home in a, in a special way that I think I tried to find ever since I had to graduate. So I was, I was one of those people that was sad to leave. 
school. So now but you haven't quite left. You you teach, as I recall. That's true. Yeah. So I yeah I guess that's the way I've been trying to find my way back into the small college town feel. So now now obviously I think uh, home is a lot more tied to wherever my wife and children are, and in some ways our choice to live in Idaho I think has is kind of squaring both of those things because. My wife has a generational framework here in Idaho. Her parents live here, grandparents. And so there's just kind of this generational scale to Idaho for us that that makes it feel like home to me, even though, unfortunately, uh, my own family isn't here. So um, they, they had just come out for vacation. And it was very odd to feel at home with my family, but knowing that they were all going to have to leave in a week. <laughs> it, was, it was so sad. Gotcha. And that, that quest for home is a theme that you explore in this book. But before we dive too deep into what I would say is a deep dive of a book that you have on Wallace Stegner, uh, perhaps we should back up and for uh, some of our listeners answer the basic question of uh, who was Wallace Stegner? Why do we remember him today? Wallace Stegner is um, so Wallace Stegner. He he was a he was a fairly well known novelist in his own day, um, but never quite household name in the context of authors. He was um, none of his books were made into movies. I think that's one big thing that kind of can launch someone into household name recognition status. But he was mostly read in the West, although he did have some level of national reach as a as a writer. But but the thing that um, makes him I argue worthy of a study like mine was just that he he wrote prominently from essentially the 1940s to the 1990s. Um, so he died in 93. He was a very disciplined man who wrote every morning of his life. So he he was very diligent in writing. He wrote multiple genres, essays, fiction, and then his own form of history that was uh, memoir history, um, some of the more straight biography. So he, he he did have a long, steady audience of readers, and he still has a pretty select set of devoted readers today who, who look at him as something of a um, citizen statesman of the West. So he was uh, not just a novelist, but a early conservationist environmentalist, and um, he articulated a sensibility that people identified with and served as a spokesman for a subset of the American West in his era. What would you say is his most famous phrase? I have some data to back this up. And geography of hope is uh, definitely the more lasting. But then uh, more recently, a phrase that comes up is his uh, comment that our national parks are the, are the best idea we've ever had. Those two compete on Google <laughs> for uh, lasting significance. His books weren't made into a film, but that, that quote about the national parks did inspire the documentary by Ken Burns. So yeah. there's something. Yeah. And for Porchers, uh, he is also the originator of the boomer sticker dichotomy that has been used by Wendell Berry and maybe remind us of Wendell Berry's tie to Wallace Stegner. That was actually my initial introduction to Stegner was I, I read a essay by Barry in, in my undergraduate years, and he was reflecting on his debt to Wallace Stegner in the What Are People For collection. The funny thing is that the only thing I really remember about it, because I, I didn't know who Wallace Stegner was at the time, but he said he was a man who dressed well because he wanted to be respected. He, he said he was not a dandy, but he dressed well. 
And for some reason, that phrase stuck in my mind. <laughs> and so many years later, my wife read Angle of Repose and told me about it. And she was very taken with it because it resonated with some of the patterns in her own family history out here in Idaho. So I finally came back to Stegner because I was interested in, in his Stanford class of, I think it was 58, that included Barry. He, he'd been intrigued with Stegner and won um, an early fellowship to Stanford, um, what, what, what still exists today, the Stegner Fellowships, and went and studied with Stegner for two years in the writing program that he had created. So that's, that's another argument for his significance is that Stegner was uh, one of the early creators of the creative writing programs, which, you know, in the context, grand scheme of things are really fairly new. Iowa uh, wasn't really prominent until the 1930s, 1940s, and then Stanford became a prominent Western program. And, you know, really they're, they're a 20th century invention, essentially. And he was one of the first people to build a program that had respect and worked very hard at it. Well, you've touched on his significance, uh, one, with some famous phrases, the geography of hope being perhaps the most famous, and his uh, importance as a teacher and mentor at Stanford. My introduction to him came through his nonfiction and his writing on John Wesley Powell and beyond the 100th Meridian. Most of his output was in fiction and novels. What would you say are his important novels at the time and his most important novels today? Most important novels at the time, Big Rock Candy Mountain was his first big novel. So he wrote two novels before that that were not quite as successful. But uh, Big Rock Candy Mountain was essentially his life story. It was 1943. And it was a, a thinly fictionalized version of, of his relationship to his parents in the mountain west and it's a very it's it's a little um i mean you could say you could make an argument that there's an element that it's tedious and maybe some of the details are a little overwhelming but it's a very powerful book and I, it's still one of the ones that hits you the hardest i think when you read it because of the emotional depth to the book and his uh, exploration of his relationship with his parents and uh, the complexities of their marriage and um, their moves across the west so that was the book that made his name. But then today, I'd say the two novels that get read the most, at least, and um, seem to still hit people are Crossing to Safety, which was his last novel, uh, 1987. Interestingly, for a writer of fiction, his, his last book is still considered to be among his best, which, you know, 40 years after he started writing, is pretty impressive. And then Angle Repose is probably the one that would most people would look at as his masterpiece. That was 1971, and it won the, the Pulitzer Prize. So that was his most significant literary recognition on a national level. And it's, it's a controversial book because he uh, borrowed the life story of a woman named Mary Halleck Foote. And uh, there's been a lot of debate, uh, even just in the last couple months, a writer wrote about that controversy. He quoted, and some people would even use the word plagiarized, large chunks of her writing that was pretty obscure and unknown at the time. But then almost just about the time that he published his book, her or as yet unpublished memoir was published and, and people connected the dots and saw that they were the same person. And so 
it's a really tough situation because his he asked for permission to use the writings and the family gave him permission but then things maybe i think his creative process kind of it overwhelmed his um, understanding of what he seemed to be doing with the words of the of Mary Hallett Foot, and I think he probably ended up using a lot more than he expected. Once the dust settled, it just became more complicated over time. My 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 official position on the controversy is that I don't necessarily blame him for the book because it was a interesting process and in how it all played out. What I would give him a little bit more blame for is that he didn't try to fix the situation once the problem became known. So he, he tended to just be pretty angry about it for some understandable reasons. Uh, people were essentially trying to undercut his all the creative effort he put into the book and, and suggest that it was basically just a ripoff of Mary Alec Foote. And I don't really think that's true at all, and I can understand why he'd be angry about it. But on the other hand, to the critic's point, I think it would have been nice if he would have said, yes, I really did use a lot of that. And I mean, my thought was that he would footnote the parts that he used and give Mary Hallock Foot the credit for it, but that didn't happen. The Mary Hallock Foot scandal was uh, was a complex issue, and and um, I've only touched on it here. The um, I I think that um, his previous biographer Phil Fradkin does a really good job of handling the details of that. So anyone that's interested, I would point you to Phil Fradkin's book for a uh, better statement of the full context and I, and I think that is important because it's it, like I said it's still something of a live debate in the uh, in some circles well we can check off one of the biggest literary controversies associated with Stegner <laughs> but your book the essence of it seems to be your exploration of Stegner's quest to make a home in the West and you focus on his writing and living in what would become Silicon Valley, but at the time was was far from that. What did home mean to Wallace Stegner, and what did he learn about home in California? The context of Stegner's life story is very important here. So he he um he grew up in the Mountain West, and I say the Mountain West purposefully because he grew up in many different states and even um, lived in Canada for a brief time. His dad was what he called a classic Western boomer, where he was a, a very energetic and talented and smart man. You could look at him as something of a, uh, a Saul Goodman kind of character, to use the Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul, more recent um, character. He was always looking for his big chance and was talented and hardworking enough that he actually came close many times but never quite found it. The thing is, is that he would come close and fail and then move. Stegner and his mother, Hilda, um, so his father's name was George, his wife, mother's name was Hilda. Stegner was much more like his mother who wanted to stick in one of these places, ride out the failure and make a home and find some rhythms of home in one of these Western towns. So I think that the place that they most thought of as home, I, in what I, in what, from what I can gather, was um, was their town in East or their home in East End, Saskatchewan, where he was uh, about eight to thirteen or so when he lived there, and they did find some rhythms of home. They had a farm that they farmed in the summer, and then they moved back to town for the winters. And the, the house that his father built 
and he always emphasized how talented he was because it was a, a multi-gabled house that he built. You know, it wasn't his primary career, but he could just do these things with his energy and talent. Still there and used as a writer's cottage. So they had that town and they had families that they knew, but farming didn't work out. It was a, it was an attempt to ride the wave of wheat needed to feed soldiers in Europe during World War One. They had some bad summers and failed, and that's when um, basically his father left respectability and became an outlaw, running alcohol across across the West, I guess, in Utah and in Canada. He was essentially a prohibition run runner. That was embarrassing to Stegner and his mother. And when and they finally they moved to Salt Lake City and and I think they lived in I think it was about over 15 houses or so in the brief period of time that they were there because they were always hiding from the law. That was a tumultuous childhood, and then um, sadly his mother died of breast cancer. That was actually the second death. Side. I meant to say his brother died of pneumonia first, helping a stranded motorist, and he caught pneumonia and died at a very young age. And his mother died of breast cancer. His father, to Stegner's great anger, left because he couldn't handle the grief. Um, left his mother to be cared for by him and a nurse in Salt Lake City. And he was trying to make things work in California, find the next big boom. And then his father died of suicide, well, a murder-suicide, um, when Stegner was just 30. So... Essentially, what happened to him was that he lost all of his immediate family by the age of 30. Because they had moved so much, he had no real place that preserved any of his memories. So essentially, he had no people, no places to confirm that he had a past. I, I, I argue in the book that he was basically trying to create place in one lifetime. You know, he wanted to have generational scale in his life. But that just wasn't there. And so he was, um, so when he moved to California at the end of World War II, he was just around 40. It was the first place he was able to stick. So his son, Paige, had a kind of smart alecky comment in one of his books about getting his butt dragged around while his father was looking for place in a way that was kind of consistent with what Stegner complained about with his own father. Once he got to California, he really wanted to just make it a place and to have it stay relatively stable, to have, have enough that memory could cling to. But when he moved there, Stanford was sort of like in the transition from being sort of a little bit of a country club for rich people from California to being one of the world's leading research universities. And then, of course, the Silicon Valley boom that you mentioned was just the seedlings had been planted, but it was not... The future of it was not even close to being known. I actually owe this to my friend Robert Corbin, but he said basically he settled in a place right as it was taking off. He was finally stable, but the place was not. So, right. He was there for essentially a rocket ride uh, around him and saw a lot of change, which uh, disheartened him, it seems. But he came with high hopes and a lot of effort was put into almost a utopian vision of a suburb Maybe tell us a little bit about how that went and then where he eventually ends up uh, while he's teaching at Stanford. I should have mentioned earlier, he was, he was married. By the time he had lost his immediate family, he was um, either almost married or married to his wife, uh, Mary. 
And they had a uh, marriage that lasted until his death and by um, just about all accounts was a very good marriage. And then he had one son himself, or, or they had one son. As a young family, they tried to join what was called the Peninsula Housing Association. And it was a uh, cooperative attempt to create a neighborhood that would be of a, a diverse character in several ways, one being socioeconomic and then very importantly, also racially diverse. And that's essentially what kept it from happening because they, they couldn't get an FHA loan to buy the land that they needed. The cooperative included a few black families. Government policies of the time prevented that cooperative from happening. And they resigned out of protest from the cooperative. And then it was eventually sold and developed as a whites-only community. But because that, that effort failed, and, and it was, I think it was a really big blow to Stegner. You know, you can see he's almost um, gushing about it in, in an early article he wrote when they were still in the process of planning it. So this is a big blow to him because uh, they, they had really big dreams about what they were trying to achieve with it. Uh, a few years later, they were able to buy some land in what became Los Altos Hills and build a house there that they really loved and in a little neighborhood that they loved. There's still a Wallace Stegner walking trail there. Um, I was able to visit his old neighborhood a few years ago. And um, at the time, the house had been torn down, but his writing cottage was still on the property. I met one of his old neighbors and she very kindly took me up there and let me walk around. Now there's been a, a very luxurious house built on the property, and I think they still have the writing shed somewhere. It was a, a huge shift in the socioeconomic status of the place as from when they bought it. I'll quote you here, you say, Stegner wanted to think about his suburban neighborhood as a dynamic space on the verge of becoming a place with the lived experiences of multiple generations accruing to it. They are so new that they have not even experienced the cycles of the seasons enough to develop a sense of what is normal for their place. You quote Stegner as saying, Where everybody is displaced, you may have to begin all over by loving one or two. Seem to be the quest that Stegner is on here in the suburbs to try to, to create a, a place out of no place, or what he called a foremost non-community. How does that work out? What's his end assessment? One of his well-known phrases, and I'm, I'm going to have to turn to the book myself here to say it. When he was uh, writing his book, Wolf Willow, which was a memoir history of his town in Saskatchewan, he said uh, in that book, I may not know who I am, but I know where I'm from. I took that to mean that he, you know, he lost his family. He was still trying to sort things out for himself. What was valuable, what wasn't, you know. So that was a question mark at the time. But he knew that when he went to Saskatchewan and, and he has this scene where he actually smells this uh, wolf willow. And, and, and that scent brings back all kinds of associations of, of his life for him. So, you know, being someone without family members, without an attic. The scent was the connection to his past that he longed for. So so that place was significant to, or very valuable and significant to him. And I look at the parallel 
uh, between that phrase and one of his phrases from Crossing the Safety, which is his last novel in 1987, takes place in Vermont. And one of his characters, the character that most resembles him, so it's not him, but very close resemblance to him, says, I didn't know myself well and still don't, but I did know and know now the few people I have loved and trusted. And I kind of use that juxtaposition to suggest that he just couldn't really achieve what he wanted in California in the sense of place. It wasn't a place that could survive on the generational scale that he wanted because one example, just that, you know, the the bare fact that the real estate prices skyrocketed so much over the course of the time that he lived there, you know, just because you can afford to live there doesn't mean that you can afford or that your children can afford to live even in the same neighborhood, you know, when you're looking at hundreds of thousands of dollars in taxes just to afford a place there. So the place changed so much and was just so dynamic of a location over the course of his life there that it just wasn't a place that was stable enough to cultivate what he desired out of it. His very tender marriage to his wife was the thing that he did know about by the end of his life. Marriage to his wife and then, you know, the few friends that were lifetime friends that he had. And and he did have very deep friendships, including with Wendell Berry. So Wendell Berry was uh, never um, someone that he lived near for very long. You know, this fellowship at Stanford was only a couple years, but they had a pretty rich correspondence through letter and then a few visits here and there. He had good friendships that I think reminded him of who he was. And regarding the geography, you quote Stegner from 1982 in an interview with Sierra Club saying, we were all here during the time when the Santa Clara Valley was simply overrun and became Silicon Valley, and that was sort of demoralizing to see. The steepest and prettiest part of the Los Altos Hills has been developed in a way that would make a cannibal cry, I think. (laughs) Yeah. He had this sense of... I guess sadness about what was happening to the place that he had such high hopes for. That angst, though, does lead to some important work. He, unlike some authors who may live in one place but but use their writing as a way to inhabit some other life, he really channeled a lot of his energy into, as you said, his, his characters weren't him, but they were pretty close at times. Yeah. They were using the fiction as a way to to share his his thoughts through characters that were very much like him. How did this time of angst and change lead creatively to important books that Stegner has left us? He had a phrase that he used in an essay, and he said every writer is um, working out an anguish question, or at least every writer that's worth reading. He had a lot of anguish questions in the time that he was writing, so he in addition to the family dynamic that he wrestled with throughout his life, the desire for home that he sought like his mother, and then the the attempt to prevent the destruction that was wrought by people like his father. But then another anguish question for him was the dynamic of the 60s. He was um, kind of an archetypal mid-century liberal who believed in education as a valuable good. He loved the liberal arts the desire to grow and learn. He wanted to have fairness and treating people by the content of their character. I think, you know, I think he was very much of the Martin Luther King strand of civil rights. 
so he was very abhorred by the racism that he experienced in his historical moment. I'm pretty sure that the, the presidential candidate that he most admired was Adlai Stevenson, which would say something about where he stood politically. He really hated Nixon. <laughs> so he had a lot of solid liberal credentials. But then once the 60s took the turn that they did in the late 60s, in the place where he lived, he um, was at Stanford during some of the student riots and was just utterly disgusted when he saw student protesters breaking down or vandalizing Stanford property. And he thought that it was just a, a destructive rage, not anything constructive. And so he was very frustrated by that. He was also frustrated by uh, some of the more, I guess, the, the hippie wave of protests that came out in the late 60s, early 70s. So he thought that essentially it was, it was more of an attempt at escape than an attempt to build and do anything very constructive for, to, the, um, to the populations that needed help. And so uh, a lot of people have looked at him since then as, as something of a crank. And there's some justification to that, you know, that he had a writer say that one of his characters was a virtuoso grumbler. He and his characters looked at the destructive protests as being very frustrating. And I think I was sympathetic to him on that score, especially because I, in the context of his life, you know, he had come from nothing and worked very hard to build things, including Stanford University. To him, it was uh, a, a bunch of young people who had didn't really take the time to respect how much work people like him had done and didn't give them credit for the context in which they were trying to work. And so there, he looked at the, the late 60s, early 70s protests as destructive out of naivete. Your book, you do an interesting job of digging deep into the archives and finding the uh, reactions of fan letters that came to him. And this seemed to touch a nerve. People who read his work as they were going through this time trying to figure out what this generation's about. It's an interesting aspect of the book. Yeah, that was actually one of the things I looked back on in the writing process that was most valuable to me. And it was just, uh, I had the good fortune to have to be able to spend a few weeks in the archives and post-COVID, that's not something that happens as much, you know, that I, I actually got to just sit down with a box and look through a ton of letters. And I really was really moved by these letters one after another. You know, it's really interesting. I think I actually had a spreadsheet going where I would keep stats on the letters. And so I had a final tally at the end. And ultimately, I didn't do much with the numbers because I wasn't sure about all the context of what was left out, I guess. I think what really struck me the most about the letters were the letters from parents of children who had gone either the hippie route or the more radical leftist route in the protest era, who seemed to try everything that they could do to reach their children, but were just rebuffed or dismissed with contempt. Some of these letters are just really sad because you can see the pain of the parents who want to reestablish connections or want to give their children advice when they can see that the path they're headed down is a destructive one, but have just simply lost contact or only are met with anger. And, and there was an element, a uh, personal element to that, in that even though they <clears throat> had a really good relationship 
later in life, um, Stegner's son, Paige Stegner, who himself became an author, um, not as well known as his father, but was a, was a writer and a professor. They had a very contentious relationship all throughout this era. So I think the pain of that relationship and then the pain of seeing Stanford, the place that he had tried to help build, be destroyed, that pain that he channeled into his books. I think other people read those books and said, you know, finally somebody's writing to us. There's a lot of movies like The Graduate. You know, I think of that one, I guess, is probably the archetypal movie on that front. A lot of art that's made out for the rebels of the 60s. And Don't 60s. trust anyone over 30, that sort exactly. of thing. Yeah, exactly. So that art was there. The art for the parents who were trying to grieve severed relationships, that wasn't as prominent. Through that angst that Stegner works out, does he ever find the home that he's looking for? And where, if we want to go pay our respects to Wallace Stegner, where do we go now? You have to go to Vermont, actually. So I, one of the great regrets I have of writing this book was that I wrote it, the majority of it, in upstate New York and Syracuse. And, you know, partly be due to having young children at home. We, we never made it out to Vermont to, to view the Stegner homestead. So I've not been there myself personally, but he had a vacation home in Greensboro, Vermont. The Stegners were introduced to Greensboro by very close family friends the Gray family, friends throughout their adulthood, and they were very good to the Stegners. They had a sort of ancestral property that was the retreat for people from Harvard, other kind of Ivy League institutions where they would go out to this very rural part of Vermont and had modest vacation homes with uh, a think house in the back that would just be a little tiny cabin for people to go do quiet intellectual work. So the Stegners built a place out there near the Greys. They actually, impressively, they had planted the trees that they eventually used to build part of the house. So they had this cabin, and they would go there almost every summer from California. The thing that I think made Vermont so special to Stegner was that it was a place that, as he said in a fairly obscure reflection he wrote on Greensboro that it was a place that was um change was so slow as to appear almost changeless that the place I mean he knew that the place changed but that it was just a place that had a coherence to it that he did not find in California families that stuck around families that were there on a generational scale and the place just became a very important part of his life and so that is where he chose to have his ashes buried the most recent major biographer of Stegner was uh, Philip Fradkin, and he, he ended his book in the same way that I did, which is to reflect on why his ashes were in Vermont when he was, you know, the great citizen, statesman, writer of the West. So, you know, given his prominence as a writer from the West, having your ashes placed in Vermont is sort of a rebuke. And so it seemed like he just thought that the West didn't learn, kept on the boom chase, pattern that, that he saw in his father and that he thought places like Greensboro were the ones that would that had cultivated the values that he really admired the most. And I think there's something to that. I, it was also the place where his son and his son's family, they kept that much longer than they kept the house in Los Altos Hills. And that was partly due to the financial difficulty of paying taxes on a place in Los Altos Hills. But the place in Greensboro stuck around. So in the end, the man of the West is stuck in the East. Yes. 
Well, Matt Stewart, the book is The Most Beautiful Place on Earth. And is that California? What, what is the most beautiful place on earth? I'll get to you one more question here. The phrase comes from another Westerner named Edward Abbey, who was very, very briefly a student of Stegner's. And um, a lot of people would look at Edward Abbey and Stegner as being not very similar, and, and except for that they're both people that, that cared about or that were you know repelled by environmental destruction. But in many other ways, not very similar. You know, you don't you don't imagine Stegner writing about throwing beer cans out of his car in the same way that is classic Abbey. Um, no, Barry wrote about both, as I recall. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, they, yeah. So linked by <laughs> disappointment, environment, environmental degradation, and a friendship with Edwin Barry. <laughs> so the phrase from Abbey is it's at the very beginning of his desert solitaire. This is the most beautiful place on earth. There are many such places. Every man, every woman carries in heart and mind the image of the ideal place, the right place, the one true home, known or unknown, actual or visionary. A houseboat in Kashmir, a view down Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn, a gray Gothic farmhouse two stories high at the end of a red dog road in the Allegheny Mountains, a cabin on the shore of a blue lake in spruce and fir country, a greasy alley near the Hoboken waterfront, or even possibly, for those of a less demanding sensibility, the world to be seen from a comfortable apartment high in the tender velvety smog of Manhattan, Chicago, Paris, Tokyo, Rio, or Rome. There's no limit to the human capacity for the homing sentiment. So Abby is, I think, getting at something very powerful in that the most beautiful place on earth is the place that we know and know the rhythms of that is our home to come back to Barry, um, what they capture there is not that beauty is completely relative to our own historical moment but that we can find beauty in the small routines of home and in the, the places that we know and that if we look hard enough um, we can find and create the beauty uh, in the places that we live and and that that commitment to Finding the beauty in the places that we live is, is a worthwhile effort. Matt Stewart, the book is The Most Beautiful Place on Earth, Wallace Stegner in California. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure. My thanks again to Matt Stewart and, as always, Wendell Kimbrew for our music. Please tell your friends, family, and neighbors about the podcast. And until next time, thanks for pulling up a chair. Find your way home.